Andrew Weisberg. He is a very prominent criminal defense lawyer here in Chicago. He was with the Cook County State's Attorney's Office for eight years where he tried felony cases. And for the past 17 years, he's been in private practice, the law offices of Andrew Weisberg, defending accused persons here in the Chicago and in the suburbs. Uh, welcome to the show, Andrew. Thank you for coming in. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You even dressed up in everything. Yeah, I put on something decent. <laughs> That's good. Thank you. I, it's, sometimes when you dress up, it's really good for your whole uh, attitude. It makes you feel a little bit more professional. But um, let's. We got so much to talk about. We've got R. Kelly. We've got taking the Fifth Amendment. But let's start with Kim Fox in the Cook County State's Attorney's Office. Did you work under her administration? You know, I, I wish I was young enough to have worked under Kim Fox. I actually left the office in 2004. Okay. Dick Devine was the state's attorney then, So, and then it was Anita Alvarez and then Kim Fox. So, no, that I did not. That was a while ago. Yeah, you were, you were a couple administrations. I'm an old-timer. Ago. Yeah, you look young. Thank um, you. But a, cu- a couple of weeks ago, Jim Murphy, who was a veteran prosecutor in the office, issued a very um, harsh letter, uh, resignation letter, that was published in the newspapers. Uh, and he said his former boss is more concerned with political narratives and agendas than with victims in prosecuting violent crime. And then he also talked about the understaffing in the office. I know that you still have friends in the office, and I know you understand these issues because you deal with prosecutors and, 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 and your friends all the time. What do you think about those complaints? Are they fair? Well, I think they're fair. I, you know, Jim Murphy in particular is a guy I've known a long time. I think he and I are about the same age. And I, I read when he had... Uh, resigned, he, he wrote a, a pretty nice letter that, that spoke not only to the current state's attorneys, but really anyone who was a prosecutor in the past. And we, we kind of say once a prosecutor, always a prosecutor. So I, I sent him a text. I told him I'm proud of him, what he said. Um, and when guys like Jim Murphy and other higher up people, I, I won't mention some of the names, who left, um, I, I believe there's something going on. Obviously, I don't work there. But when people of that magnitude leave, these are career guys and career ladies. And when they leave, I, I think they're suggest- there, there must be some issue that's causing them to leave. And I think there's a, a real perception uh, with the state's attorney's office that they're going soft on crime and that they are more concerned with exonerating people. And, and again, that, not that there's something wrong with exonerating people who might be not guilty of the crimes that they serve time for, but it just seems like a focus at a time where people are so afraid to get in their cars because of carjacking and crime all over the and now all over the city in places where crime traditionally was at a minimum. Um, and, and people are clamoring for justice. And, and I guess, you know, what do you say to uh, Kim Fox when there's this perception that she's going easy on crime? So it's it's such an important question, and I, I talk about it myself and think about it a lot. Um, I, I think there might be some blame that, that falls to Kim Fox, but I think perhaps it's a little over overstated. Um, I mean, I, I have had several clients hire me in the last several weeks on sexual assault cases where the evidence wasn't even particularly strong, in my opinion, and my client's opinion, and yet they got charged and they're being prosecuted. I think in that office, if there's a, a violent crime, a carjacking, a murder, a rape, sexual assault, um, anything like this, armed robbery, if if they catch the right person and they've got sufficient evidence, I think they're going to charge it. I, I think it's a little overblown when people say that she's letting murderers go. If there's a good case, they will charge it. I think where they've gone a little bit soft, and you know, for better or for worse, is in drug cases. I, I think it's okay that we see a lot less drug possession. I used to see drug possession cases every week come to my office. Now, if I get a case, uh, a call on a drug case, it's probably a different county. Um, but drug dealer cases, I think they still should be going tougher on those guys. And I hardly see any of that. I don't know what's going on with those cases. And I think when you let those guys go, I think that creates an impression that you can get away with a lot of things. Right, right. 
you know, just kind of as an aside, you you were a prosecutor, and a lot of people stay prosecutors their whole life. That's just the way they're wired. Uh, and some people are public defenders and will always be defenders, uh, whether it's in private practice or with uh, a county. What what you, what made you turn around? What made you say, all right, I prosecuted, I know how to do this, I like this, but what made you say, now I'm going to represent those very people who I was actually trying to put in jail before? Well, I, I think it's it's common, as you said. I, I think most people that prosecute don't intend to prosecute for life. I actually did. There was a time when I thought my entire life would be as a prosecutor, maybe a judge someday. Um, but I'm not going to lie. When, when you're a state's attorney, a prosecutor, you don't make much money. And you know, I had been eight years in the office and, and making the kind of salary that uh, you know a, a first year associate in a law firm might make, and probably even less. So at some point, you you start to think, you know, if I'm going to have a family, if I'm going to make a living, I've got to do something else. So that was part of it. Um, but since I moved into private practice, it, it was a pretty easy transition. I thought I would miss the state attorney's office. I did a little bit in the beginning. I missed the camaraderie, but I, I really like what I do now. You said something on your website. You have a nice video, and I encourage everyone to go to uh, the website. Can you give, give out your website, Andrew? Thank you. It is chicagocriminallawyer.com. That's great. chicagocriminallawyer.com. You have a, a really nice video, and, and in it you say something to the effect of when you were a prosecutor, you thought all these people who you're prosecuting were bad guys and 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 now that you do defense work what, what you have a slightly different view of it yeah you know part of the problem is so i i was like most i was i graduated law school at 25 started as a prosecutor and from the moment you come in you're only reading police reports talking to police officers and you believe every word they say is true um and then when you get on the other side you start to get a different side of it and you say, oh, you know what? Maybe what they're saying is true. Maybe the police aren't always telling you the truth. And uh, what I found was most of the people, not all of them, but the, the overwhelming majority of people that call me, even on serious crimes, are actually pretty good people who messed up one time. Maybe they're innocent. You know, often they're not, but they, they, they messed up one time and they're coming to me for help, but they're actually good people overall. Interesting. Um, let's talk about the R. Kelly case. I don't want to get too too much into this, but um, as you know, he was uh, prosecuted and convicted in a New York case uh, that had to do with racketeering, saying that what he was doing with having sex with minors uh, was a part of a, a racketeering uh, conspiracy where people were helping him uh, drive the girls, procure the girls, and facilitate these crimes. Now the case is starting on Monday in Chicago, and among other things, it's child pornography and sex crimes, but also the issue of obstruction of justice. And as we recall, in 2008, uh, Kelly was on trial in the state court here in Chicago, and he was acquitted of having sex with a minor and having child pornography. And the part of the case is going to be that he obstructed justice, he and his co Cohorts obstructed justice by paying off witnesses, intimidating them, and the like. Um, there are two defendants uh, besides Kelly in the case, her manager and another employee. How is that going to play out, Andrew? Because now there are three defendants, and um, are they going to turn on each other? As a criminal defense lawyer, how would you try to strategize to, to get the best deal possible here? So it's a great question. I, I, I think that's a decision that, that has to be made. The only way I would see where all three defendants essentially get together and try the same case, use the same defense, and rely on the same evidence is if each defendant is 100% sure that the other one's not going to point the finger. Um, 
I, I think that's very unlikely. I think that the best strategy for each of these defendants is to pick your own defense and go after your defense. Obviously, you want to listen to what the others are saying, but I think it's very likely in this case in particular where there's accusations of, of paying off witnesses and witness intimidation that one guy is going to say he did it, the other guy is going to say he did it, and the other one's going to say I didn't know anything about it. So in this case, I think the best defense is everybody picks their own defense and, and executes that def- the defense as well as they can. And I think that that's going to make this trial very interesting, although there's no cameras in the courtroom that I'm aware of, so we're not going to get to see it, unfortunately. But it's, it's always interesting when you've got three defendants pointing fingers at each other. And, you know, and, and I, I think I'm, that would be my guess, too, that going in lockstep here is going nowhere. And, and there has to be those two other defendants have to say, Kelly was a bad guy doing this stuff. I didn't condone it. I didn't help it. Why would I do that? You know, it would be more more that kind of defense. Um, how do you pick a jury in that case? So you're, you're R. Kelly's lawyer. What kind of jurors are you looking for in this case? So the difficulty he has, I mean, he's a 55-year-old guy who just got a 30-year sentence in federal court in New York, which means that 85%, you know, he won't get much off for good time. So if he's fortunate, unless a miracle happens on appeal, he's not coming out till he's 80, regardless of this case. So the judge, of course, will instruct all the jurors, disregard anything you've heard about R. Kelly, et cetera, et cetera. But that's probably near impossible to do. I think if you're his lawyer, you got to make sure that jurors answer questions that, yes, I'm willing to serve on this jury, that I'm willing to listen to the evidence and disregard anything I've ever heard negative about R. Kelly and only judge the facts in this case. And then maybe he's got a shot. Yeah. And it's and then he's got another case ahead of him in Chicago state court and yet another case and then one in Minnesota. So and and prosecutors are probably going to go forward with those. Right. I mean, the prosecutor doesn't say, hey, I already got two sentences. We're going to drop charges. Does that happen? Sometimes I think that wouldn't be a bad idea. But there's always the problem with at least theoretically, there's that one percent chance he may win an appeal in New York and get that uh, vacated. And and so I think they're going to go through with all of them. And, And, you know, interestingly enough, if you're the defendant and you're R. Kelly and you're spending every day in a jail cell, you don't mind getting out of your jail cell, coming to court, sitting around other people. He 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 went on on the show with uh, I forget her first name, Miss King, and was declaring his innocence. He wants to. He probably enjoys this more than sitting in his jail cell. So I, I assume he's going to want to take all these cases to trial. And that's so true. I mean, it it is a very um, it's a very monotone place to be. It's a, it's a lot of drudgery going day to day in a prison. I tell I always say one day in a prison cell with a, with a prisoner, as I'm sure you have spent time as I have. Uh, it seems like a year. Yeah. I, I mean, it really, really. I don't even does. like. I don't even like visiting there. I'm no. always afraid when I get there, they're going to change their mind and let not let me out. Yeah, <laughs> I, I could see to that, <laughs> <laughs> Sheriff Dart. Yes. Um, we're going to be talking more about uh, some of these other legal issues uh, from the week. If you have any questions here for Andrew Weisbert, please give us a call. He's a very nice guy. Three one two nine eight one seven two hundred. We'll be back in a minute. We're going to talk about going back to college. And if you have grandchildren or children, or if you're going back to college, uh, you are probably, uh, you know, in a situation where you are going to run into problems with the law if you don't behave yourself. And it's very important to tell college kids what the laws are and what the possible ramifications are if they break those laws and how those things can really stay with you for many, many, many years. So we're going to get to that in a minute. We're talking here with Andrew Weisberg who is a criminal defense lawyer here in Chicago, the law offices of Andrew Weisberg. What is your um, website again for people who might want to contact you? I appreciate that. Oh. It's, uh, Chicago. Oh, Go ahead. It is com. All right. And we've got a call from Roland. Roland, welcome to WGN. You have a question for our guest. Uh, yes. Hello, counselors. Hi. Okay. Uh, I believe 
that conviction review and conviction integrity should be handed to either the Illinois Attorney General or to a legal foundation. Otherwise, you have a conflict of interest. So, Roland, are you saying, and I think I understand what you're saying, you're saying if if there is somebody in jail who's claiming that he's innocent and there is a review done to determine whether or not the prosecutors are going to continue to maintain that that person is guilty, that that should be done by a separate organization because it's a conflict to throw that in the hands of someone who actually put that person in jail. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. Yes. What do you think, Andrew? What do you, weigh in on that, if you would. That's a good, really good question. Yeah, I think Roland's a thoughtful guy. Um, you know, it, it may depend on on which administration prosecuted the case. So, so what seems to be the situation is where you have a guy that was convicted of murder, let's say under Dick Devine or Jack O'Malley twenty years ago, and then it's Kim Fox or it's Anita Alvarez. I think it's probably a little better if, if that office is reviewing it, and I think they're probably more likely to review it fairly. Um, but I suppose if it was something that came back so quickly that the same administration were in the office, um, I, I can see where they might be more defensive about their conviction. And, and you know, I think the point is that, you know, when you have uh, somebody who's been wrongfully convicted, we really, our system really relies on uh, different organizations and different lawyers who are, you know, God bless them. That's what they do for a living. These these organizations that, you know, gather their resources and they try to get enough money to get investigation and DNA testing and all that. Um, and that's quite that's quite a task when you're going up against the power of the government. Uh, but that's an interesting thought. I wonder if anyone has formally proposed that. I, I appreciate that uh, thought, Roland. Take care. Thanks for listening. Um, let's talk a little bit about Donald Trump taking the fifth in a civil deposition this week. Uh, our p- former president was quite busy in the legal aspects uh, of his life this week. And there was a there's a civil uh, investigation going on into the Trump organization and about uh, the different financial matters involving the valuation of business assets and the like. And there's also a tangent criminal investigation going on regarding the same things, because some things can be civilly actionable and also criminally actionable. He was called upon to give a deposition and he took the fifth like 440 times. Tell our listeners, was that good advice from the lawyer and was it good uh, for Donald Trump to actually take the advice of his attorney? I I believe it was good advice. I'm a big fan of the Fifth Amendment when it comes to my clients. And as you pointed out correctly, there's not only a civil case, but there's a criminal case. And anything he were to say in the civil case could easily turn around and be used in a criminal case. I think people always are aware of the whatever you say to the police may be used against you in court. But that applies to just about anybody you talk to in almost any setting, including a deposition. So I think, yes, that was the right move. And if you recall the Bill Cosby case, he gave a civil deposition many years ago, I want to say 10 years ago, in a case where one of the women that alleged that he sexually abused them, um, he gave uh, civil testimony that was later used against him in the criminal case. So it's certainly a reality. And so what do you say to the people? I think there was a uh, letter to the editor uh, in the Tribune this morning that said, you know what, if Donald Trump is innocent, you know, he should he should have just testified. Um, Is that that's is that a fair is that a fair criticism uh, well, it may be fair of the former president because he himself had pointed out several times that anyone who takes the fifth is a mobster or guilty. So I, I suppose, it, it, you know, in regard to what, what he believes, perhaps it is. But I think he I think he's learned that that's not always the case. So, no, I don't think in general and even as to the former president, it's a fair accusation. Just about any time I ever take my clients to a police station or they're about to be interviewed by a, a detective, uh, in, except in the most rare of circumstances, I tell them they're not going to speak to the 
to the detective. Well, and, you know, I always say to people, and, and sometimes, you know, the client wants to testify and wants to tell the truth. and what, But I always say, you know, the prosecutor makes his living. He puts his kids through college by using words to prosecute and to convict. And they're not there just on a lark. They're not there having fun with you. They're there for, you know, you're there for a reason. And and whether you're a target or not, you know, certainly words can be twisted. And I assume, too, with Donald Trump, he, he may not have had on hands dealing with some of these issues. You know, he could have had people doing some of the stuff for him. So he may not even really be fully aware of all of the the answers to these questions. And again, I'm not a huge Trump fan, but I think that was really a very, very wise decision for him to take the fifth. And I don't really attribute any uh, anything bad when it comes to that. Um, Let's talk about, let's start the, um, and if you have questions, I'm going to have Andrew stay on for a little bit while I take questions on any uh, any legal question you might have, 312-981-7200. In 2021, Illinois passed a, kind of an omnibus criminal justice reform act. Uh, many parts, um, there was one part of the act that made body cameras mandatory for law enforcement agencies. There's different whistles and bells for when this has to be complied with. As a criminal defense lawyer and and a former prosecutor, how do you see body cameras as being helpful to prosecutors, and how is it helpful to police officers, I suppose, and how is it helpful to criminal defendants? Well, it's such an interesting development because I think when all these agencies started having body cameras, the idea was it's going to protect defendants, it's going to protect the accused, police aren't going to beat up suspects, all this great stuff is going to happen for the accused. But what I found... In just about every case in which there's body-worn camera, which in Chicago is just about every case, it ends up being a problem for my client because in most cases, they will have said something to the police that's incriminating. And so when I see BWC, body-worn camera, on the police report, I know there's, there's camera information coming, and I have to hold my breath to see what it is that my client told the police that is going to be used against them in court. Interesting, interesting, because you, you never know which way that's going to turn. But, um, but, you're, but you're right, and I think that juries these days really like to see really tangible evidence and, and, and someone admitting to something is probably as compelling as anything else. Yeah. It, well, you know, and, and it, it goes beyond body cameras. Whenever I have clients on cases, it, whether it's a bar fight, a shooting, anything, they always say, well, if there's only a camera, if there's a camera, we're going to be okay. And what ends up happening most of the time is you might subpoena the camera from the bar, from the street. It, it's blurry. It's turned off. It's broken. It's pointing in the wrong direction. It's so rare that a body, ca- well, other than a body camera, that an actual camera catches the actual crime or, or scene in progress. So it ends up usually being worthless. But the body cameras are very good and they're high resolution and they do often come back to haunt my clients. Interesting. Um, just quickly, we've got a couple minutes here. A client comes into you, Andrew, and uh, let's just say it's a some kind of criminal robbery or something like that, and they're charged. And, you know, what what, what is the strategy? What do you do first? What, what is just kind of your game plan all along the way? Well, so the first thing I do when somebody calls me is I just want to hear what they have to say. So I, I, I kind of make it open-ended. People call, they say, well, where should I start? I just say, we'll start at the beginning. Tell me what happened. They'll kind of walk me through and I'll jump in with questions. Um, Oftentimes during that first phone call, you can start to formulate a defense, Uh, but oftentimes it takes a lot longer. As we go through, as you know, there's a process called discovery where we get reports, we get witness statements, we get videos. It's really not often until we see all that evidence that you can really formulate your defense. But sometimes the defense, like in a self-defense case, if a guy gets into a bar fight, hurts somebody very badly, or shoots somebody, we want to know, what was their self-defense? Were you being attacked first? Did somebody come after you with a knife? You could start to see that uh, defense develop, but, but often it takes time. 
And when it comes to, uh, just quickly, mm-hmm. when it comes to plea bargaining, how do you view that? Is that something that you always keep in the back of your mind? Uh, yeah, I, I think the way I look at it, I mean, once in a great while, I'll have a client come in and tell me from the first second they walk in the door, I'm not taking any deal. I don't want anything. I'm going to trial. And then that's certainly their right. But I, I try to look at things as, as there's two things you're doing at one time. You're at once trying to prepare for an eventual trial. And the other side, you're trying to get your client the best possible deal you can get them so that at the end, oftentimes a year later, that you could say, okay, here's the best that the state's attorney's offering. You could take this deal, or if you don't like it, you can go to trial. But I want them to have a choice, not just trial or nothing. And I suppose part of getting ready for trial lets the prosecutor know that you're serious about this and that you're going to be ready come hell or high water. You're going to have all your ducks in a row. And that puts the prosecutor in a situation where maybe plea bargaining might be a little bit more, uh, they might be more generous in that area. It's a great point. It's kind of like, and I was never a fighter, a street fighter, but you know, guys who are willing to, to get up and, and, and engage in a fight, sometimes when you, you put your hands up, the other side says, all right, never mind. We're not going to do this. <laughs> I never had that experience. But in court, that's true. It's oftentimes when you take the case to the brink of trial, suddenly you get the state's best offer that you wouldn't get just in plea negotiations. Right, after you've done all that hard work. Right. We're here talking to Andrew Weisberg. We're going to take him for another segment, but please feel free to give us a call here on any legal question you have, 312-981-7200. And a special shout out to Mel Weisberg, who is listening to his son, uh, so he's a, are you a second generation lawyer? Uh, I am. Yes, he, w- he was, the, he was the, the best lawyer in the family, and I tried to follow in his footsteps. Sounds great. Uh, we'll be back in a minute. Andrew Weisberg here in the studio. He's a criminal defense lawyer, and he represents people who have been accused of all kinds of different things. He was a former prosecutor, and we're kind of running down the news stories uh, of the week. And we're also going to get to one minute. We're going to talk about going back to college and what some of uh, problems you could have your children um, or yourselves uh, run into legally uh, when they go back to college. But I'm going to give out the telephone number here for anyone who wants to ask any legal question, whether it's a criminal question that you have yourself or whether it's something that you've seen in the news regarding all the amazing news stories this week. 312-981-7200. And before we get to the back-to-school part, Andrew, uh, and I just asked you this off uh, microphone, but are there, you know, first of all, I have to ask you this question. How can you represent people who you know are guilty? You get that question all the time. But can you give our listeners uh, the reason that you do and why it's a good thing to do what you do? Well, the funny thing is I used to get that question even when I was a prosecutor. People say, how can you represent someone when you know they're guilty? And I had to explain that, no, that's not what the prosecutor does. <laughs> um, but I do get that question a lot. Uh, you know, here's the answer I give. People say, well, how do you, because you're trying to get them off. You're trying to get them off of their crime. In most instances, you're not completely getting them off of the crime. If somebody goes and shoots 12 people, they're not going home without anything on their record. Oftentimes, you have a charge let's say, a sexual assault type charge, where the state's attorney has such great latitude in, in terms of what they can charge. And oftentimes they throw the book at the person. And, and what the lawyer is doing is trying to trying to show the, the prosecutor, okay, this guy may have done this bad thing this one time, but overall 99% of his life has been great. And let's see if they can bring these charges down, make it more manageable, maybe keep him out of prison, maybe get him counseling. You're there to try to, to, try to help them um, get a better situation. It doesn't mean they're, they're just going to walk away. Right, absolutely. Um, and let's. Uh, and I guess I guess I'd like to know: Is there a particular defendant type of defendant who you would just not choose to represent? Because you're not in the public defender's office. You're a, a private practice lawyer, and you can pick and choose your cases, so you don't have to represent uh, clients. But what client wouldn't you represent? Well, 
the number one rule uh, since I've been in private practice, my wife Cheryl will not let me represent anyone who has done anything to an animal ever. So that's <laughs> Good right, girl. Yeah, right out of the box. And Steve Dale, our resident um, animal rights uh, activist here, would probably agree with you. Yeah, so that that takes that out of the picture. Um, you know what? It, it's I, it's kind of a case by case basis. I mean, I suppose if there was a school shooting, if children were were, were killed, some certain things just immediately, I'm so devastated by myself that I wouldn't want to even be a part of helping that person. But a lot of times, it, it's just talking to the person. And I and luckily in private practice, and and since I've been able to do fairly well for myself, I can pick and choose a little bit. And if if I like the person, if I feel it's someone I can work with, then in most cases, I'm willing to help them. Let's talk about going back to school. You and I had spoken about this topic, and a lot of kids are packing up right now and, and sharpening their pencils and going back to co- the college campuses. And just, you know, I get a lot of calls from people who say, back 20 years ago when I was in college, I had this issue, and now it's on my record, and now no one will hire me. How can I expunge it? And maybe it's expungible, maybe it's not. What are some of the things that you should be telling your college-age uh, children um, that, that they should be really you know, uh, concerned about going back to school from a legal standpoint? Well, there's the obvious ones like don't drink and drive, don't, you know, underage drinking, things like that. But I think that's nothing has changed in that regard over the last 20 or 30 years. The, the one that concerns me more, and having a, a very young son that, that scares me now about someday him going to college, is uh, the prevalence of, of accusations of sexual abuse among college students. And I often will tell people that on college campuses, you'll have a situation where a 19-year-old boy and a 19-year-old girl will get drunk and they'll have some sort of sexual activity. The next day, the boy never gets up walks to the police department and says, you know, I think I had a little too much to drink last night. I want that young lady arrested. But it happens frequently the other way around. And I've had cases where they the the, the two um, connect or they hook up as they say and everything's fine for a week or two and then three weeks later the police are at the, at the kid's door arresting him. Um, I've seen kids who are in medical school about to graduate and all of a sudden they're getting arrested and everything's destroyed. So I think when it comes to sexual relationships in college, you have to be if, especially if you're a young man, you have to be extremely careful. If there's any alcohol whatsoever involved, I, I would just. Stay away from it. Um, you have, just have to be so, so, so careful because anything that is even uh, misconstrued these days with the Me Too movement uh, will often lead to charges. Even if the evidence is not great, it, it may be enough to have the person charged or at least an investigation with the school where the kid could get expelled. And I suppose that goes both ways, not only from a legal standpoint, but as to young girls going uh, away to college. You know, when you drink to the point where you're blacking out, a lot of times neither party actually remembers what was what happened and so you know and that's traumatic and i have seen situations where the young man is charged but also the girl gets dragged through the mud too because there's a lot of pressure put on her as being the person who complained about it so you've got both sides that have you know basically have had a devastating uh had a devastating effect on so um that's really really good advice and you know when when you make a mistake like this and, and you're telling your you so make your kid grown up now your kid going back to uh, the campus at um, uh, University of Missouri and you're saying to him what if you get arrested for open alcohol or you get arrested for vandalism because you're stupid enough to be you know putting graffiti on uh, in the quad you what what do you what do you tell him to do what is your advice to him well yeah to anyone who who gets arrested the number one thing and this is not very popular these days is be incredibly polite and respectful to the police officer you will gain nothing i watch youtube videos throughout the day sometimes just looking <laughs> at people going up to police getting in their face throwing brakes jumping on their car none of that's a good idea be very nice courteous respectful to the police officer but 
if they want to question you on a crime, do not discuss it. Now, there are rare exceptions, but we don't know when that rare exception is going to come. And if you find yourself in a position where you're under arrest, it's best not to talk about the crime. Be polite, be respectful, but do not discuss the crime. It's good advice almost always. Again, you don't want your words twisted, especially if alcohol is involved. You never know if you're going to have the best judgment because uh, yeah, it seems like a lot of these issues all relate to alcohol on a college campus, unfortunately. Andrew Weisberg, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, can you tell our listeners where to find you on your website and maybe a telephone number too? Sure. Uh, the website is chicagocriminallawyer.com and you could also call 773 908 9811.